Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome to the Bible Line. If you're new, this is an hour-long broadcast where we take people's questions about the Word of God, maybe a challenge you're facing in your life, a passage you're trying to understand, uh, a ministry application as it relates to your local assembly. If we can help, this is an opportunity for you to call in. Again, the number locally is 525-1859, Or we have a toll-free number for those listeners outside of the immediate area, and that number is 877. The call letters of our station, WAGP, 877-WAGP980. People also email us directly here into the studio, and you can email us at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. If you call, uh, you can remain totally anonymous. You can go on the air without your name, or you can just dictate your question, and we'll be happy to receive it however you'd like to give it. Rick, good as always to be here. Indeed it is, Pastor, and I want to apologize to some of our listeners. We had uh, not checked our email last week, and we did get a couple in, so uh, one person re-sent it, so let's get to it right now. This person would like to know, what is your opinion of churches having fundraisers outside of their church body. He writes, I see in Acts 4 where the people sold their goods implied outside their church. I've had someone tell me Third John 7 tells us not to take money from unbelievers. I feel they took that verse out of context. Are there any definitive verses for or against fundraising? Well, that's a, it's a great question. Let me first comment on the Acts 4 passage. Um, under the example of Barnabas, a person that we recently studied, uh, he sold the price of his land, uh, and then he brought the proceeds to the apostles' feet, so to speak. In other words, he put it under their authority for them to use as they saw fit. There was a financial challenge in the church. Pentecost had come. And had come. There was a... Um, A couple of messages preached shortly after. On the first day, 3,000 souls are saved. A few days later, Peter stands up, preaches again. 5,000 heads of households, excluding women and children, are are saved. And so you have a church, conservatively speaking, of 25,000-plus people. A lot of folks didn't want to leave Jerusalem because they were learning all about Christ, uh, that the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies had come true They were being grounded in their faith before they left, and so their resources ran out. And so you had people like Barnabas and others who sold their property. That's no different from anyone in business today. Uh, You buy a house, um, you uh, fix it up, you sell it, you take the profit from it, you may tithe, uh, you may give the whole thing to the church. However God leads you, Uh, giving is not an issue of percentages, it's an issue of the heart. And so this was not the church utilizing foreign means in which to raise 
their money. These monies came from believers uh, through their business transactions, and God laid it on their hearts, a number of them, uh, to go ahead and uh, give the proceeds to the apostles. Now, there is a balancing verse, which you mentioned, so let me just turn there real fast to the book of Third John in chapter uh, verse 7. There's only one chapter. Uh, in Third John verse 5, it says, Beloved, speaking of Christians, uh, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers, and they bear witness to your love before the church, and you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the name of, they went out for the sake of the name, that is, they went out preaching Jesus, accepting nothing from the Gentiles, that is, from unbelievers. Therefore, we ought to support such men that we may be fellow workers with the truth. So the point here is they did not derive their support from lost people, from a lost world. Here, Gentile is a a synonym for pagans. Uh, Jesus said, don't be like the Gentiles who think they're going to be heard for their, you know, many words. Uh, Again, they're being used to describe an unbeliever. Sometimes in very often the term Gentile in the New Testament is used to describe someone who ethnically did not derive from Abraham's loins, a non-Jew. But here, as in many places, just used to describe unbelievers. And so his point is, when you had these teachers, these born-again evangelists and Bible teachers who traveled the country uh, preaching the Word of God, uh, they were to be brought into the homes, they were to be cared for, and when they left, they were to be sent off in a manner that was worthy of the one whom they represented. Uh, But again, I think it's a very important principle here because what you discover is that they're not going to the world for support. They said, we're not going to the world for support. We're going to go simply to God's people. In fact, I think this is one of the things that drove the Apostle Paul and some of his tent-making ministry where he would go to a particular city, unlike the... uh, common uh, practice of the day where a teacher would come and expect from the students to receive funds. Paul would preach the gospel. He'd at night, he'd work during the day. Um, and once a church was established, he might receive funds from them. But he did not want anyone to think that he was in the ministry for the money or for that matter, that he was a person who is going to take his funds from the world. So how does this all flesh out today? Well, I think, again, Christians, if we would simply practice God's biblical method for supporting his church, a lot of the problems and challenges that people face in local assemblies, they wouldn't face. Um, What I find interesting more and more today, you know, when you, in fact, I just got something in the mail three or four days ago uh, on my desk in it was. It came in a very nice envelope, and I opened it up and uh, written to the pastor of the church, and it was. It told us that we could be a part of the Pumpkin Patch Ministries, and we could have a pumpkin patch at Community Bible Church. And they showed all these churches with hundreds of pumpkins in front of their church, and you know they're selling pumpkins to you know raise money to keep the church afloat. That's going to the world to support the church. You know, when these churches have, you know, these, um, I don't know, uh, yard sales and rummage sales, I, I think that they are really displaying a problem. Now, more and more today, those kinds of 
methodologies are done by churches that have only a form of Christianity and not the essence. But if God's people gave God's way, they gave the tenth of the increase to the local assembly and the offering as the Lord led them to the work of the Lord, then most local assemblies would not have financial problems. So God doesn't expect us to go to the world to finance his ministry. When I went on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ in 1978, we had to raise all of our own financial support like most missionaries in the world do today. About 90% of the missionaries in the world today are not funded through a denomination. They're independent mission agencies and uh, they raise their support in that fashion. Or sometimes they're entirely underwritten by a single church or a couple of churches. But one of the things I promised myself and the Lord I would do that I would not go to non-Christians to ask them for financial support. Uh, again, I, my, if I met a non-Christian who is interested in my ministry, my greater interest should be to share the gospel with him, the plan of salvation, not to ask him for money. So it's God's manner is really summarized succinctly here and illustrated in many other places throughout the Word of God. In fact, if someone wants to study this in further detail, I have a course on uh, managing God's money, God's way, and it's broken down into stewardship, giving, saving, debt, and investing. And so the section on giving, we walk through what the Bible says about giving, and we look at a number of passages like this, but the clear message of Scripture is summarized here in Third John is that lost people are not the ones who support the work of the Lord, saved people are. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-WAGP980. That's 877-924-7980. Or email us at tbl at net. Our next listener writes, I have been wondering about ghosts. I can't find any biblical evidence of a spirit of a dead person appearing to anyone except for Samuel appearing to Saul in 1 Samuel 28. If we die once and are immediately judged and there is no in-between state, is it correct to assume that what people call ghosts are some sort of demon? Furthermore, does that mean that psychics, mediums, ghost hunters, etc. are actually dealing with something very dangerous and evil? Well, that's a great question. Um, Let me first start by defining what you mean by ghosts. Uh, In the Old English, the uh, Greek New Testament pneuma Uh, We get, you know, pneuma means spirit. Uh, They would often translate it ghost. And so in the Old English, we speak of when when I learned uh, how to say the blessing as a young Roman Catholic boy, we said in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And somewhere in there, uh, we changed it, or the Roman Catholic Church did to the Holy Spirit, as did most evangelicals. Most uh, translations no longer refer to the Holy Ghost, but to the Holy Spirit. But in the Old English of the King James and other uh, translations, it was always Holy Ghost. So the term ghost, uh, I know, has kind of a spooky dimension to it in our day. When I was a kid, there was a, a cartoon called Casper the Friendly Ghost. <laughs> I don't know if they have that on anymore. Do they, Rick? I have uh, not been looking for it, so I can't really tell you. (laughs) You don't watch the Saturday morning cartoons? Well, I thought I was talking to an expert here. So anyway, um, but there's also a negative connotation in our day for the term ghost. And certainly, let me me turn to 1 Samuel 28, because this is kind of an interesting passage of Scripture. Uh, If you remember, Saul is getting ready to face the... 
uh, Philistines, and he's shaking in his boots, and he has uh, sought God, but God didn't give him an answer. Uh, it says, Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah in his own city, and Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. That's good. That's what God dictated in passages like Deuteronomy 18. Uh, you weren't supposed to have folks like that. And in Leviticus, uh, if folks were involved uh, in the covenant people of Israel practicing a necromancy that is trying to communicate with the dead, they were to be stoned to death. So Saul did what was right there. I give him credit for that. So the Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together and they camped in Gilboa. When Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Remember, in many portions and in many ways at this time in biblical history, God spoke, sometimes in a dream, sometimes in a vision. Sometimes a prophet of God would have a direct revelation of God where he became God's spokesman. Or sometimes by the Urim and the Thummim, which is um, something the high priests wore on their breastplate and uh, on their breast and how, you know, God did it. We don't know. It's unknown to us, but somehow he spoke and made his will clear. In either case, there was no answer. Then Saul said to his servants, seek for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. So there is obviously one who had not been cut off uh, in Israel uh, so here they go to Endor. Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes. So he takes off his royal robes and he dresses up like an ordinary fellow. And he went and he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night and said, conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name to you. But the woman said to him, behold, you know what Saul has done. Of course, she doesn't know this is Saul, how he is cut off. That's a Hebrew expression used throughout the Old Testament to refer to death. You know, the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel speaks of Messiah being cut off or, 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 or dead, how he was cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you then laying up for me a snare for my life to bring about my death? And Saul vowed to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, there shall be no punishment come upon you for this thing. So he basically says, Look, I'm not going to rat on you. I'm not going to let Saul know what you're going to do. Uh, you can do this without any fear of your own life. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me for you, your Saul? Now, why she cried out is debatable amongst uh, evangelical Bible uh, scholars. Some would say, well, she cried out because she had been a phony all along and uh, didn't really expect to see anything happen, and she was just a deceiver and, you know, a manipulator. That's a possibility, I suppose. Uh, I think... Um, Probably if she was truly involved in necromancy, it may be that she did communicate with people in the past. Indeed, she communicated with uh, with demons. And there are people today, uh, I think there's a ton of frauds out there, you know, who do their tarot cards and their crystal balls and everything else. But I think there are some that are actually engaging in the demonic world. 
And sometimes demons are happy to accommodate if you will embrace the theology that the spiritist is teaching. So you've got, you know, sometimes police departments who cannot solve murders. And so they go to these um, these fortune tellers of sorts and say, hey, listen, find out who killed such and such. And they try to communicate with the dead. And sometimes they've come back with an answer and they've solved the crime. How do you deal with that? Well, listen, the devil came to kill and to destroy and to steal, and he's involved in a lot of crimes, and some crimes are indeed demonically inspired. I'm convinced of that for some, not all murders. A lot of sin that happens in this world just comes out of man's own fallen nature. James 1 teaches doesn't need any help from the devil. Uh, Thank you. Uh, But on the other hand, Let me just say that um, sometimes when a person communicates with the dead, they're communicating with an actual demon. And that's uh, maybe what this woman had been doing along. But what shocked her was that the real prophet of God came up and she knew it. And maybe the reason she screamed was because she realized from the experience that this was Saul. I mean, obviously she knew it was Saul. I think that's probably the more likely reason for her scream. In either case... Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, do not be afraid. But what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. And he said, well, what is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. Now, if you go on and you read the text, Samuel said, listen, the reason you haven't heard is for the simple reason that God fulfilled exactly what I told you earlier, because you compromise yourself in dealing with Amalek and you save some of the spoils of war. God tore the kingdom from you and the spirit of the Lord departed from you. And so he doesn't speak to you anymore. Um, and so why are you bothering me? He says, why then do you ask me since the Lord has departed from you and has become an adversary? Um, so, you know, he, he's rather irritated. Um, in fact, the, the terminology that he uses, uh, let me just read it. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? So what happened to Old Testament saints when they died? It's a little bit different. And so what you're doing here in your question is you're connecting Old Testament theology to New Testament theology, and that's the point of confusion. Because you're arguing, well, absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's exactly true under the New Covenant. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. So the moment a person dies, he's either in heaven or in hell. There's no in-between state. Uh, So you don't communicate with the dead in that respect. Uh, But under the old covenant, and I think this is certainly an exception to the rule, absent from the body did not mean present with the Lord. Absent from the body meant present in Abraham's bosom or Sheol. Sheol is the place of the grave. And in the Old Testament, Sheol is described in two terms. There's righteous Sheol, there's unrighteous Sheol. There's righteous Sheol, which Jesus uh, figuratively uses the term that was common to Jewish thinking in that day, Abraham's bosom, a place of great delight where God's people went. And there is unrighteous Sheol that Jesus describes in the parable, or maybe it's not actually a parable. If it is, it's the only parable in the New Testament where God actually uses a name, uh, where Lazarus and the rich man dies. He dies and he goes to Sheol. Uh, unrighteous Sheol, Hades, and it's a place uh, for the rich man of torment. 
So uh, that all changed for believers. Now, unbelievers, when they die, they still go to unrighteous Sheol, Hades. And that's why at the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, 11 to 15, uh, God calls up the dead and all who are in Hades. And they stand at the great white throne and death in Hades is cast into the final resting place known as the lake of fire. But for this age, from the day Jesus arose from the dead and then ascended into heaven, he emptied out Old Testament Sheol. So in this age, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So can people communicate with dead folks today? Well, they can certainly engage in demonic activity. And I think what happened with Samuel was unique. Um, This might be indeed a case for what Adventists wrongly use, because again, they're mixing Old Covenant with New Covenant. You've got Seventh-day Adventists today who advocate soul sleep, and they would turn to a passage like this. Well, you know, why have you disturbed me? Uh, Why have you brought me up? and awakened me, so to speak. And, uh, well, you know, uh, I'm not sure that this is teaching soul sleep uh, for any moment. It, it, there, there's no apparent teaching that, that Old Testament saints were not conscious. Uh, so when you read the book of Genesis, for instance, it talks about being gathered to his own. But it, it could be an, a, a case of Old Testament soul sleep, but it's highly debatable. But clearly under the New Covenant, Believers do not sleep in their spirits. Their bodies are laid in the grave, and that is described as sleep. But for the Christian, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So there are folks today, and they're communicating with demons, not with, uh, not with the people of God. And God forbade such activity to even think about it in passages like Deuteronomy 18. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right, very good. 525-1859, toll-free, 924 Seven nine eight zero, and you can always email us at tbl at wagp.net. I thought we had a caller waiting, but uh, apparently we do not, so we'll get back to them. Oh, there they are. All right, very good. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Uh, good morning. Uh, Pastor, could you uh, explain the term kingdom of heaven in regards to temple and uh, spiritual, and how is it manifested to believers and unbelievers alike? Okay, I was trying to hear, he's breaking up real bad, but let me see if I can comment. I believe the term kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are parallel terms in the word of God. And they certainly are used in different ways. I think there's certainly a present dimension to the kingdom of God, and there's a future dimension to the kingdom of God, and actually a literal future dimension to the kingdom of God. Uh, But Jesus um, speaks of his kingdom. And there are two kingdoms. So Paul can say, when you're saved, you are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And then he uses the parallel term in the other epistle to describe being transferred into the kingdom of God. So in one sense, it certainly describes those who inherit salvation, those who've been saved. Uh, There will come a day when our salvation is completed And we will fully experience all the benefits when the church is glorified, when the, when you received a a resurrected body. Uh, But the term kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God are parallel terms. And one nice really feature today with computer concordances is that you can not only uh, look up particular words under the old paper concordance, you'd have to look up, well, kingdom 
or you'd have to look up God, but you couldn't look up the phrase kingdom of God. Well, now you can look up phrases, and now you can look up phrases in near proximity. So you could say um, kingdom of God slash kingdom of heaven, and you can look at two phrases in near proximity, and we'll bring up those passages via the computer search that will show you where they're used in close context. And what you discover when they are used in close context are used identically of the same, uh, of the same, in the same way. So when you're saved, you become a member of God's kingdom. You receive and inherit salvation. That's not to be confused with the fact that there is a literal coming kingdom that God promised to the nation of Israel. Uh, unfortunately, uh, there are some, uh, starting largely with Luther and Calvin, who denied that aspect. Really, it goes back to Augustine, where they got the thought, and Augustine thought that ah, God's done with the Jewish people. And St. Augustine was a good guy, but he, I'm sure, had to apologize to some Jewish people when we got to heaven, because he said some awful things about Jewish people. In fact, if you go into the Holocaust Museum in Israel or Washington, D.C., those uh, slogans put up by some of those guys or posted, and it's rather an embarrassment to the body of Christ. But uh, their thought was is that there's not going to be a literal kingdom when Jesus will come and rule and reign for a thousand years. Well, there is. The Old Testament teaches there will be a literal kingdom in which Messiah will rule. Now, the length of that kingdom is not discussed in the Old Testament. We learn the length of it from the New Testament, that it is indeed a thousand years. But listen, all of the prophecies that God has fulfilled in the Old Testament thus far, he has literally fulfilled every single one of them. When Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, he's not born in Jerusalem. He's born in Bethlehem of Judea. By the way, the Book of Mormon, Alma chapter 7, verse 14, says he was born in Jerusalem. Mm, They can't both be right. Somebody's wrong there. But they're literally fulfilled. And so when the Bible speaks of God coming, Messiah coming again, and uh, ruling uh, from Israel in the Old Testament and all the blessings that come with that, we should have no expectation that they will be anything but literally fulfilled. So there's a literal dimension to the kingdom of God. There is a spiritual dimension to the kingdom of God in that right now you become a member of the kingdom of God and there'll be a full expression of it when you die and go home to be with the Lord or he comes to rapture his people. Great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right. We've got another live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Yeah, thanks for calling today. Um, My question is, um, I think it was after one of Paul's missionary journeys. uh, He said something along the lines of, uh, I think the Jews upset him, and he said something like, um, you know, I— I'm turning away from you. I'm, I'm now turning to the Gentiles or something like that. Yes. Uh, my, my question is, is that the time when God officially stopped dealing with the Jews as a nation, or was Paul just speaking of his own you know, personal ministry since he was called to the Gentiles? And if not, do we know when the timeline was when God officially stopped dealing with the Jews as a nation? And I'll just hang up and listen. Well, it it is a great question. Um, Certainly there in the third missionary journey, when Paul makes that statement after repeated rejection from the Jewish people, um, I don't think for a moment that he's totally abandoning 
the fact that he would still try to reach Jewish people for Christ because he is going to write in that third missionary journey, the book of Romans, where he will speak about carrying the gospel to the Jew first and then then to the Gentile. But with that said, I do think that the Apostle Paul at that point in his ministry recognizes that God has basically fulfilled the promise that he had made to Israel and he wanted to affirm that promise through the apostles that he is a promise-keeping God. And so when the day of Pentecost comes, God starts with the Jewish people. You see that in the first uh, seven chapters of Acts. Everyone who's saved in beginning in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, all the way through Acts 7 are Jewish people. Then in Acts 8, you have some half-breed, so to speak, half-Jew, half Gentile, the Samaritans are coming to faith. And then in Acts 10, you have the very first uh, Gentiles, Cornelius and his household. But there came a point in Paul's ministry where he realized that he had basically done all he could do in terms of reasoning with the Jews in a very forward way, because the typical pattern for Paul is seen in most of the cities he visited. If there was a synagogue, is the very first place he would go to would be the synagogue. And then after that, he might go to the marketplace or other places where he would preach to the Gentiles. Now, I would say in very clearly here that God's not done with the Jewish people, and we should not even today, at this point in the age of the church, abandon Jewish evangelism. I was led to Christ in an indirect way through a Jewish guy. He was teaching the class on how to share your faith. Um, And his name was Ellis Goldstein, still a good friend of mine. Uh, raised up in a Jewish family, came to faith in Christ. While I worked on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, I worked at a campus that was uh, 25% Jewish, Duke University. I don't know if it's still that high, but it was uh, during the 80s. And uh, a number of Jewish students came to faith in Christ. We have three Jewish believers in our own church here at Community Bible Church that I have the privilege of introducing to Christ. So don't abandon Jewish evangelism because in the book of uh, Romans, and Romans, unfortunately, 9, 10, and 11 are often misunderstood. Uh, Some think it, it is almost a parenthesis to the book of Romans, but it's not. He's keen off of what he just says at the end of 8, that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Which, to a Jew reading this book, their first question would be, well, wait a minute. God said that he loved the Jew with an everlasting love. And if he loved the Jew with an everlasting love, then does he still love the Jew? And Paul really answers that in 9, 10, and 11. In Romans 9, he deals with Israel's election. He's not dealing with personal election. He's dealing with national election. And he shows out of all the nations of the world, God chose Israel to bring the Messiah. And uh, when you look carefully at some of the passages, um, he's not saying that some who were chosen over others, like Isaac's chosen over Ishmael, that that means Isaac went to heaven and Ishmael went to hell. Where did Ishmael go when he died? Read the book of Genesis. He was gathered to his people. What people was he gathered to at that point? Who had died in his immediate family at that point? Well, only two that we know of for sure. Hagar, his mother, who's wondrously converted, and Abraham. So he's gathered as a believer. But was he the son of promise? No. 
God didn't choose to bring Messiah through Ishmael's lineage. He chose to bring it through the son of promise, Isaac. Nine deals with Israel's election. Ten deals with their rejection. And 11 deals with their future restoration. And so when you read 10 and 11, one of the things that Paul underscores is that there's only a partial hardening on the Jewish people, not a total hardening, but a partial hardening, which tells me today that there are Jewish people who are still coming to faith in Jesus as Lord. So don't give up on the Jewish people. Um, In fact, uh, we know that there is coming a time in the future, as Romans 11 indicates, as the prophet Zechariah chapter 14 indicates, where Jewish evangelism is going to be successful on a level we never even could imagine. Uh, Israel is going to turn to Jesus and believe in her, believe in him as as their Messiah. That's what Zechariah the prophet speaks of. They're going to look on him whom they've pierced. They're going to acknowledge that he is Lord. It's going to happen. In fact, the, the, the people who are doing the evangelizing during the time of the Great Tribulation period are 144,000 Jews from the 12 tribes of the nation Israel, Revelation chapter 7. Now, how they're converted, we don't know. Maybe they're going to have a Damascus Road kind of conversion. Or maybe... Um, Maybe after the church has taken out, you know, all these Jews who for, you know, 70, 80 years now have been hearing about through all these evangelicals visiting that land about this rapture and this taking out. Hey, you know, we've been hearing this for years from all these American Christians and Christians from other parts of the world. And and they start pouring over the scriptures and God sets apart 144,000. Why that number? I don't know, but that's the precise number he's going to set apart. And they become indestructible. They become Jewish evangelists whom you can't kill, who are going to preach the gospel, and a great multitude, John sees, whom he can't even number, are saved as a result of their ministry. So God's not done with the Jew. He used the Jew to bring about the first coming. He's going to use the Jewish people to bring about the second coming. And there are some significant events that are happening that I'm going to, I hope, discuss later this fall. Uh, with Israel right now as we speak, that if you really truly understand the scriptures, your eyes would be wide open because they're further evidence that God is uh, setting the stage for the return of his son from heaven. Let's go to the next question. All right. Our next caller would like to know how we explain to unbelievers that God loves us when they're suffering the aftermath of Hurricane Irene or other natural disasters where there is so much suffering and destruction. He has had to deal with so many who are mourning loss, and he just wants to make sure he's able to answer these people with love and compassion. Well, it's a good question. It's the age-old question of, you know, why does a loving, gracious God allow suffering in the world today? And, um, in fact, I'll be doing a series, God willing, uh, throughout the fall and maybe a little bit into the spring on the 10 most commonly asked questions about Christianity. And one of those questions is, how does an all-loving God, why does an all-loving God allow suffering? And, of course, there are biblical answers, and we need to be ready to make a defense for the hope that's within us. Uh, There's different kinds of suffering in the world. There is what we might call common suffering. Common suffering is that kind of suffering we experience because we live in a fallen world. And so in Genesis 3, when man falls, all of creation falls with it. 
all of a sudden, Adam and Eve began to age in their bodies. Uh, all of a sudden, there's thorns and thistles in the ground that they have to struggle with. And while man worked before the fall, now he has to work by the sweat of his brow. Paul in Romans 8 reminds us that when man fell, all of creation fell with it. And though indeed the heavens are declaring the glory of God, they don't declare the glory of God in the original fashion in which they declare the glory of God. And sometimes I think of that when I am in some part of the world where there's just some breathtaking piece of landscape that you're looking at and you think, wow, this is so magnificent. But I wonder what it looked like before the fall, even more magnificent. And someday we'll see an expression of that in the new heaven and the new earth. So when God allowed the creation to fall, that was uh, that was an expression of his kindness. It, had he left Adam and Eve in a world that was like the Garden of Eden, some folks might have thought everything's just fine and, and dandy when it was not. So it was an expression of God's even common grace to all men that he allowed the creation to fall because it put man on notice that there was a problem. So with the fall of the creation comes tornadoes and hurricanes and natural disasters. That's certainly not the sole cause of it, but it certainly is a cause of it. There's other kinds of suffering that the Bible speaks of. There's carnal suffering. First Peter 4 speaks of that. When you suffer um, as a result of your own sin, by no means let any one of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. Uh, look, at, Christians can break the law, and when Christians break the law, they are not exempt from the consequences of breaking that law. And then he speaks of, let not any of you suffer as a Christian. And so sometimes Christians suffer as well for the simple reason that they are representing the Lord Jesus, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. But when natural disasters come, Jesus teaches me in the Gospel of Luke that they should be a reminder of man to get right. Uh, Sometimes they are. They're short-lived. You know, when 9-11 came, the churches in America, the attendance on average, they said, went up 25% across America. Uh, You know, there was a time in America where on any given Sunday, 75% of Americans were in church. Now, depending on whose numbers you're reading, either Gallup or Barna, they put it between 28 and 35 percent. So in 30 years, we've gone from 75 percent of Americans being in church to 35 percent of Americans being in church. Well, when 9-11 came up, attendance boosted 25 percent across America. People got frightened. People got scared. That was actually a healthy response. Jesus, remember when he said, hey, you know, they said, well, you know, whose fault was it, you know, on the Tower of Siloam caved in and, and uh, you know, that time when uh, Pilate did that evil deed and Jesus said, listen, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. And so he reminds them that natural disasters of sorts are, among other things, a reminder to get right with God, because in some ways they illustrate the coming wrath of Almighty God, which is extremely real, and men are going to face it. So, you know, when a hurricane comes, uh, you know, don't look down on it. Uh, look up on it uh, in the sense that, look, I didn't want the hurricane to come here. I was praying I didn't want to clean up my yard afterwards. It's too much work. But on the other hand, 
you know, I see, I saw it as an expression of the grace of God uh, in that, again, some people get scared. Some people get frightened. And, and that's the problem that we have in our day. Uh, people no longer fear God. Uh, people no longer are um, afraid. And when you have a generation of people who don't fear their teachers in school, who don't fear the police, who don't fear God, look, they'll do anything. And that's more and more the expression of what we're seeing happening. So what God is going to do when, as we move to, towards the end of the age, he's going to turn up the rheostat. So Jesus likens earthquakes and famines and natural disasters to a woman who's in childbirth. And with uh, labor, the pains increase in intensity and in frequency. So while we've always had earthquakes and hurricanes and famines, as we move to the end of the age, they're going to increase. There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and upon the earth, dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. That's what the Lord says. And when you read the revelation, and again, if you just take it at face value, certainly there are some figures of speech in there, most of which are interpreted in other passages of Scripture. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. But there's a lot of things that you cannot take any other way but just at face value. And you see these natural disasters taking their fullest expression in that final seven years of history. And again, that's just God further turning up the rheostat. Why? Because he wishes none should perish, but for all to get come to repentance. And if a man won't get right in the face of death, he probably will never get right. Um, you know, we talk about foxhole conversions, but listen, some of them are real. Some foxhole conversions are genuine. Some are just for a moment, but some are real because men all of a sudden are facing death and they're facing eternity. And so God will use such things in a good way. So uh, I hope that helps. And um, hopefully I'll have that in a full-blown handout later on this fall for people to be able to get and listen to. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-WAGP980. Or you may email us, as this person has, at tbl at wagp.net. Uh, They write, Pastor, there is a new movement that seems to be challenging many local churches that youth ministry is unbiblical and age-integrated Sunday schools violate Scripture. Can you comment? Well, um, it's an interesting question. And certainly, uh, when you think about age integration, uh, there is an age-integrated church in the New Testament. There is an assumption that there shouldn't be a generation gap. So when you go to uh, passages like um, Titus chapter 2, if I can just give an example, uh, the apostle there says, Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith and love and perseverance. Uh, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips and slave to much wine, that they will encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home. And so you see an age-integrated church, and there are many examples of that in Scripture. In 1 Timothy 5, there's an assumption that the church is age-integrated. I do think what has happened is that 
sometimes under the uh, motive, which is a very pure motive of wanting to reach people to Christ, we've adopted a mindset that is really antithetical to Scripture. And so some people will say, well, we need to choose our target audience. And our target audience, or years ago, it was baby boomers, and then baby busters, and then Generation X, and you know this certain segment of society. Unless we shape, cater, and manufacture the local church to fix that, fit that generation, then we're not going to reach them for Christ. And oh, the illustration—if I can um, uh, pick on Rick Warren here for a second again—I think his motivation is pure. He wants to win people to Christ. He, he likens it to a radio station. He'd say, "Look, WAGP." can't be rock and roll or classical or country or Christian. They got to pick a format. Um, and so they would say to the local assembly, you can't be everything to everybody. You got to pick a target audience. The problem with that is the church is in a radio station and that mindset really breaks down in scripture. God assumes that older men are discipling younger men, interacting with them, that Older women are teaching the younger generation. Now, I'm not against uh, family-integrated Sunday school, but uh, in fact, I brought this up a little bit on Sunday morning in the service in that sometimes good people, well-meaning people, will get involved in these age-integrated Sunday school classes. And we actually have a couple out of our 17 that we offer on Sunday morning for adults where they're family-integrated. Everybody brings in their kids. I don't have a problem with that, but just don't forget that there was a time maybe when you weren't a Christian and because a, a local assembly provided for you the opportunity to put your kids in a nursery so that you could go in and hear the word of God in a Sunday school class or in a worship service in an undistracted way that because of that, you came to Christ. And now that you've come to Christ, you've grown up a little bit. You think, oh, well, you know, I got to protect my kids. And that's a good attitude in the sense that you are called principally to reach and disciple your own kids. And so what some people have done is they've passed that responsibility as parents off to the church. But listen, understand the church has to reach kids and teenagers. And so some people are totally opposed to youth ministry. The kind of youth ministry I'm opposed to is the kind of youth ministry that develops the mentality that it's uncool to be with your parents, the kind of mentality that would break down the family. And that's not good. But let me just say, I was reached by youth ministry. My, my parents didn't open up the scriptures and train me and disciple me because they weren't believers. And so it was through our youth ministry, Campus Crusade for Christ, that I found the Lord as my Savior. So don't discount all youth ministry as unbiblical. And you cannot definitively say, based on chapter, verse, and text, that all youth ministry is unbiblical. And that every event must be age-integrated and every um, expression of fellowship must be family-integrated in the local assembly. You can't build a case for that from Scripture. What you can build a case for is that parents— are called to be responsible for the training of their children. And if you as a parent feel like a Sunday school class that your child is attending is detrimental, then take charge. Make the kid go to class with you. You need to do what's right as it re relates to your family. But most people are not consistent. The Sunday school movement, take that for an example. Um, you know, okay, age-integrated Sunday school. 
Uh, they would say, and we, by the way, have a lot of age-integrated Sunday schools where we have, you know, older adults mixed in with younger adults, and it's very much age-integrated. Some are not. But the, the, the Sunday school in and of itself, nowhere in Scripture does it say you shall have a Sunday school class. Doesn't teach that in the Word of God. Now, there's an overarching principle that within the larger church, there were places for fellowship and intimacy. So you've got a church in Jerusalem that is thousands and thousands of people, but in addition, they met in local homes. But there's no command in Scripture, thou shalt have Sunday school. What's the genesis of the Sunday school movement? It goes back to England in the late 1700s, 1780s, where you had kids, you know, working six days a week. Uh, 12 to 14 hours a day out of school. And so Christians realize, look, we're raising a, a generation of illiterate children who don't know the scriptures. So they started what we call Sunday school to teach them to read. And the principal book that they taught them to read on was the Holy Scripture. And so was that a bad thing that you had an adult working with a group of children that were illiterate? I don't think so I think it pleased the Lord. You had you had ministries even in this country as the Sunday school movement caught on here in the 1800s that reached out to people. So you had a guy like, you know, uh, Kimball reached out to young boys in the streets and uh, in Boston and brought a young fellow by the name of uh, Dwight Lyman Moody into his Sunday school class and won him to Jesus. Uh, was that unbiblical? And then God uses him to shake three continents for Christ. I think not. So let's just step back. Balance is key here. Um, when you think about, you know, how we as a local assembly should be engaged with one another and caring for each other and loving each other and, and carrying out the fulfillment of the Great Commission. What you can say with dogmatism is that if you are a born-again Christian parent— God puts the principal responsibility for the rearing of your children on you, not on the youth pastor, not on the senior pastor of a church, but on you. Now, God wants to use the local assembly to help you, but the, but, but the, the pastor or the youth minister or whoever is only going to have you and your kids, you know, four or five hours a week. There's 168 hours in every week. So you gather in the Lord's day as God commands. Um, you know, this expression of what we're seeing is is wrongly applied in a lot of areas. So you've got people, especially like in the northwestern part of the United States, who do what they call home church. Oh, where do you go to church? Oh, we have home church. Sounds real spiritual, but it's not. Oh, well, tell me about your home church. Well, I'm the pastor, and I have my wife and my kids that are there. Or sometimes uh, there's two or three families that gather. Is that really a church? I mean, what constitutes a local assembly? Does a Bible study you attend, does that constitute a local assembly? You know, some people say, well, I'm not forsaking the assembly of the brethren. I go to a Wednesday morning Bible study every week. Well, does that constitute a local church? Now, there's nothing wrong with going to a Bible study or having one in your home. But what makes a local church a local church? Well, number one, it's organized. There's elders, plural. There's deacons, plural. There's church polity. Uh, they practice baptism, the Lord's Supper. They're involved in caring for their own members, feeding them biblically, uh, reaching out uh, geographically through the ends of the earth. 
those are expressions and characteristics of a local assembly. And if you have, you know, three adults and eight kids in a house church, tell me, do you have all the gifts of the Spirit that are important to the maturation of the body that Ephesians 4 speaks of? No, you don't. You might have a couple of gifts represented there. But you don't have all the gifts of the body that are necessary as each individual part supplies, as Paul argues at the end of chapter 4 of Ephesians, that are necessary for you to reach the maturity that God wants you to reach in Jesus Christ. So what we've done sometimes is we go to these extremes and sometimes we build up these walls because we have this protective mentality and we don't want you know, our kids to get cooties. Listen, if youth ministry in America has failed, and it has, the problem was not principally youth ministry. The problem comes very often back to parents who neglected their responsibility. And most often, and I think principally, the problem comes back to pulpits that were not preaching and teaching the Word of God. And so you have weak youth ministers because they don't have strong pastors who are really teaching them and training them and discipling them through the Sunday morning pulpit ministry, which is a major expression of discipleship for a local church pastor. It's what he does on Sunday morning when he stands up for not 10 minutes or 20 minutes. Listen, sermonettes are for Christianettes but maybe for 40 or 50 minutes or an hour and really teaches them the Word of God. That's going to produce healthy parents, healthy leaders in the church, and uh, hopefully, by the grace of God, responsive, godly people. Anyway, great question. I think we're about running out of time, Rick. And um, But as always, uh, we're glad to be here for the Bible line. And I know there are several questions that came in that we didn't get to yet. But by God's grace, uh, we'll get to them. So uh, God willing, we'll be back here next Tuesday for the Bible line in the interim. If you have a question that's on your mind you'd like to ask, you can email us directly to TBL for the Bible line at net. And when your question is answered, uh, we um, post it on the uh, website. You'll see all the questions that were answered today. You can kind of scan through the Bible line to, if you see your question was the fifth one in line, and just listen to the answer later on online if you're not able to listen to us live. Hey, listen, have a great day. May the Lord bless you richly. 